Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years. That's what I love about the Lord. He just says it like it is, man. And there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines, all those of the Geshurites, from the Shehor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim. In the south, all the land of the Canaanites and Meara that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebelites and all Lebanon, toward the sunrise, from Baal Gad, below Mount Hermon, to Lebo Hamat, all the inhabitants of the hill country, from Lebanon, to Misrephot Maim, even all the Sidonians. I myself, still God talking, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. Joshua 1 through 12, those chapters contain the narrative of the conquest. This is the bit that most of us remember when we think of Joshua. There is a pretty significant transition here from chapter 13 to the end, chapter 24, halfway through, that will discuss the distribution of the land. And that's why we are going to be skipping some sections as far as our reading goes tonight, because while these boundary markers would have been very important to the people living in them, for us today it is uh, less applicable than some of the things we're going to talk about. Although it is important for you to have at least a general familiarity with the, arche not the archaeology, the ge uh, geography of this land that we read about so much. Joshua has aged. We estimate he's around 85 years old at this point, maybe more. We know he's going to die at 110 years old, but that does not mean that he's necessarily going to be as spry as Moses was all the way through. Chapter 24, verse 29 tells us how long he lived. And yet, he's getting old. Old enough to the point that the Bible feels the need to mention it, and God feels the need to say it to him. He says, the job's not done, Joshua. He tells him to divide up the land so that each tribe will then be able to conquer their own individual territories. You can't miss this here. He's not just saying give them the land. He's saying divide up who gets what, and then rather than all of you going to war together, each individual tribe can handle what's left in their own territory because the big cities, Gibeon, Ai, Jericho, had fallen. And once again, tonight I want to remind you of the analogy that we've been following of the promised land to the abundant life in Christ. That, of course, these are real stories. This really happened. It's literally true. But it is also, you might say, allegorically true, typologically true, that God has rescued us from the slavery of sin, leads us through the desert of those initial years where we encounter Him at the mountain and gain His law, gain His Holy Spirit, and then we're to move on to the promised land. Now, once you get there, there's giants to slay. You got problems, you got habits, you got baggage and scars that you got to deal with in order to take possession of that which is already yours. And I'm not just making this up. Hebrews chapter 4 says something very similar using the same passage. Talking about the children of Israel. He says, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Referring to Psalm 95. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. He's saying, those of you that find rest in Christ, you realize more and more that it has less and less to do with your works and a lot more to do with God's grace. 
Let us therefore, verse 11, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. I like to tease that Calvinists don't love Hebrews as much as they love Romans and Galatians because there's a lot of verses in there like that where you might say, you've got to strive to attain that rest. And somebody might say, oh, no, we don't strive. God does everything. It says strive. Of course it's in God's hands. Yes, all right. But you still, according to the scripture, have to strive to take possession of the land that has been given to you, implying that it is possible for you to live without the full abundance that God intends for you because of your lack of effort. We've been talking about that a lot. And tonight we're going to see, if you're taking notes, seven things that we've got to do if we, like the children of Israel, want to have rest from war. That's a phrase we read in the previous chapters, that the land had rest from war. They had to just conquer their territory and then live in it. We want that too in our Christian lives. It can be applied a number of ways. What do we got to do? Well, let's see what they did. Now, Professor Dave Early used to say, if you want what they got, you got to do what they did. I'm going to skip verses 8 through 33 of this chapter. This is reminding us of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh that were to be on the western or eastern side of the Jordan River. And I've got this map of the land as it was distributed up here. We'll have it up here a lot tonight for you to get familiar with it. These tribes are, are called the Transjordanian tribes, meaning across the Jordan. Uh, Moses promised them in Numbers 32 they could graze their cattle there after they had defeated Sihon and Og, the giants. And this has uh, already been distributed. This is why the Lord told him, distribute it to the nine and a half tribes, because the rest of them had already been given their, their allotments. And here it notes also in this section that Levi had no territory. We'll come back to them. And that the Canaanites had not yet been fully driven out of the land. The back of Canaan is broken. They have conquered the nation, but there's still holdouts of Canaanites living there. Let's move on to chapter 14, verse 1. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one-half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. And the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in, with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded, they allotted the land. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, still base camp, Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to him, I love Caleb, he's one of my favorites in the Bible. You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now, give me this hill country 
of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. So Judah is going to come first. Most of these chapters will focus on the distribution west of the Jordan River. But Caleb shows up of the tribe of Judah and has a specific request of his old spying buddy. Numbers 13 and 14, Joshua and Caleb were the two faithful spies that went into the promised land and came back and said, yeah, it's full of giants, but we can take them. They said, they are bread for us. That's why the Lord said, I better put these guys in charge of my army. They got the right attitude. They got the right stuff, as they say. Well, it's been 45 years. Perhaps Joshua was thinking, you know, Caleb's no spring chicken. I'm no spring chicken. And uh, he's, he's fought valiantly, but it wouldn't be fair to send him to a real dangerous war zone. Let's give him a nice fertile plain. Let's give him something that is, is sweet and he can just rest and sit on the front porch and sip sweet tea. And Caleb steps up and says, nah, -uh. <laughs> do you remember what happened? We went up to those mountains and we saw the Anakim. Remember the Anakim were a, a, a strain of, of Nephilim. They were half giant, half men. And they were dominating the land. And Caleb was the one that said, I want to go fight some of these. And he says, if you think you're going to take that away from me, Joshua, I've been waiting 45 years to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with one of these guys. So you give me the mountains. You give me the hardest terrain to fight with the toughest bad guys and the least possibility to raise crops. That's where I want to live. Maybe God will help me. That's faith, man. That's faith. Faith is not when everything in the business plan lines up. Faith is when you go, maybe. Wouldn't it be cool if God did this? To wholly follow God means to be brave enough to take on impossible assignments in faith. Here's our first point. If you desire rest from war, number one, you got to want it. You've got to want it. You've got to be like Caleb with this audacious, pugnacious desire. You know what audacious means, don't you? Asking for something that maybe you kind of shouldn't. And pugnacious means I'm willing to fight you for it. Audacious, pugnacious desire. Caleb is not going to be put off. He's not going to be giving it to somebody else. That's mine. I want it. And the rest of you young pups can just sit back and watch me take it. An old man in, an, in a Bronze Age army. That's somebody to be afraid of, isn't it? Do you have that desire for what the Lord wants to give you? Are you like that blind man that heard Jesus was crossing by the road? And so he started shouting, Jesus, have mercy on me. And was like, shut up. Let's sit down, will you? But it says he cried out all the more. Jesus, have mercy on me. He says, bring him over here. He says, what do you want? I want to see again. Don't you love that? He didn't say, well, Lord, uh, Whatever you want, I'm sure you only want good things for me. So I just, you know, he's like, no, I want to see. And Jesus said, all right, according to your faith, may it be unto you. You got to want it. Some people don't even know what they want because they think that all desire is illicit. Can I remind you? That's what Buddhists believe. Buddhists believe that the problem of the world is desire. And if you stopped wanting things, then you'd be okay. That's real nice to say to a poor person, isn't it? 
Well, if you just stopped wanting money, you'd be fine. <laughs> I don't want all this rich, wealthy stuff. It's just, it's just there, you know? The Bible does not teach that. The Bible tells you it is okay and, in fact, important to want good things. And don't get it all twisted up where you think, well, what if I can't be sure if this is the right thing to want? Just, guys, just stop. Stop with that. Stop twisting yourself up in knots like you're going to make God angry by wanting something that is not sinful. Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And I've heard some people preach that, and I probably have too. They say, what that verse means is God will change your desires until you only want the right things. Yeah, but that's not what it says, is it? He'll give you the desires of your heart. God is a good father. He's not a stingy businessman. All right, show me your, show me your proposal, and I'll look it over. Just let you know, I'm probably not going to do it. I've given you my son. Don't ask for anything else. You've got to want it, friends. You've got to be like Caleb muscling these young bucks out of the way and saying, I want the mountains. Do you really want to fix that marriage? Oh, y'all, I can't tell you how many people have come and talked to me about their marriage. And what they really want is not to fix the marriage. They want to give a list of problems that are so terrible. I'll tell them, yeah, it's okay for you to get a divorce. And if you don't want help, I can't do a thing for you. I don't make money off of that. I'm only here to help people. Do you really want to build that business you've got? Do you really want to earn an incredible amount of money to bless the kingdom? We shouldn't want money. Okay, yes. But again, don't get it all twisted up. You don't think God wants you to go out and do well and show everybody around you can build something big and great and awesome on righteousness? You don't think the church needs people that are able to finance the kingdom of God? Book of Acts needed them. Do you really want to eliminate pornography from your life? Well, we know we should want that, but do you really want that gone? Now, of course, there's other steps beyond this, but it's got to start. Some of y'all need to start wanting things again and stop just kind of drifting and hoping that the Lord will steer me wherever he wants me to go. This is the Lord steering you, telling you, step back with the eyes of faith, look at your life and say, what do I want? I don't think it's appropriate to say, well, tell it to Caleb. He showed up and said, I've been waiting 45 years. I want to kill some giants, Joshua. I'm ready to go. I might die, but what a way to go, man. Dying, fighting giants on mountaintops. That's what I want. That desire, that drive that you have in so many other areas of your life, don't let the devil keep that out of your walk with Jesus. You got to want it. I'm going to skip the first 12 verses of chapter 15. It's going to give you uh, the land that was given to Judah. They are given the largest swath of territory, unless you count the combined sons of Joseph, who got a double portion. Judah would be the kingly tribe, which is what jo uh, Jacob prophesied in Genesis 49. The southern kingdom, when it divided, would take the name of the largest tribe, which was Judah. Uh, their territory went from the northern tip of the Dead Sea, across to the Mediterranean, and down into the desert which is where the border was with Edom and then Egypt. But I want to read verses 13 through 19, a little more about Caleb's family and the kind of people he raised and hung out with. According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Now Arba was the father of Anak. So if Anak was the shall we say, the first Nephilim in that line. It could be perhaps that Arba was the name of the demon or the false god that had copulated with his mother. 
Verse 14, And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Shishai, and Ahiman, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. Nobody knows their names anymore, but there's people named Caleb everywhere. That's what the Lord does. And he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath-Sefer. And Caleb said, Whoever strikes Kiriath-Sefer and captures it, to him I will give Achsa my daughter as wife. And Othniel, the son of Canaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, as wife. And she said, I'm my own person. You don't tell me who I married. No. She said, sweet, I get to marry the guy that captured a city. Sweet. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. She got off her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? Very direct fellow, this guy. She said to him, give me a blessing, like daughter, like father. Since you had given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So he goes off and he conquers those mountains, defeating three Anakim chieftains in the process. But the incentive to defeat the last city was for his daughter to be married. And so Othniel could be his direct nephew. Brother can also be broader. So perhaps it was different than that. But they married within their tribes. And he wins Aksa's hand in marriage, who then is shrewd enough to ask for water. Yeah, we've got this great city. Where's the water going to come from? Wives often think of these things. <laughs> Gentlemen are like, hey, check out this house. And she goes, okay, where are we going to sit? <laughs> On the floor? It's fine, like our ancestors did. Quite a family here, isn't it? It's also possible that the, that the Kenizzites were not originally of the ethnicity of Israel. Because we read of certain Kenizzites that were Canaanites. So some people believe that, the, that Caleb's family had joined themselves to the nation of Israel. I don't know if, if you can push it that far. Uh, it, we are not clear on who all these tribes were, but in any case, that would just make it more so. So what do we learn from this? If you desire rest from war, number two, you got to get help. Lone wolves are loser wolves. Did you know that? Wolves hunt in what? Packs. So you find one out by itself. That's one that couldn't play well with others. You're out and you see one wolf by itself. You might want to grab your gun because something's probably wrong with it. We need each other. We need people. Caleb's family fought together. Grandpa's leading the way. He's giving his daughter's hand in marriage, who is a very shrewd Proverbs 31 woman. He's got this nephew, Othniel, that has been raised by his father that smashes this giant city. Pride will keep you small. Pride will keep your territory in the promised land small. Remember, two kinds of pride. There's thump your chest, swagger pride. I don't need anybody. Fine. Then your territory will be you-sized. Or you can be the shy kind of pride that says, I just don't want to talk to anybody because if I talk to them, then they might think I'm silly and might think I'm funny and, you know, what's, what good will it do anyway? And so I'm just, I'm just not going to do any of that. Stop thinking about yourself so much. Stop that. That's pride too. Your promised land may be yours, but guess what? God gave you neighbors. That's why God gave us the church, by the way. The church cannot just be, every now and then I find a nice place to check in, hear a good Bible study, get my blessing for the week, and then go on back out. I don't like the way we evaluate churches these days. You know, and are we part of it? I don't know. We live in this culture. But we, when we join ourselves to a congregation, you've got to join yourself to that congregation. Become friends with people. Take it upon yourself to meet people. Nobody's been nice to me. What about you? Have you been nice to people? Have you been going out and trying to make friends? Are you insisting that people do everything on your terms? 
Or you say, well, I've got my friends. I don't need any more. Stop that. Stop that. This is a family in this place. There are people here who have skills and knowledge that you need. And there are people here that need the skills and the knowledge that you have. Titus chapter 2 gives this great section about the old men showing the younger men how to be men. And the old women showing the younger women how to be women. That's what the church is for. So if we're going to say, What's this country's falling apart and gender norms are falling to pieces and you don't go to church, friend, you're part of it. Because you've stripped away the mechanism that God gave us to build those things. We need cheerleaders in our lives. People that are just going to say, hey, you can do it. I'm proud of you. Business partners. We need people that will be able to catch us when we're wrong and help us and support us. We need both mentors and protégés. People that we can look up to and people that can look up to us. You need competitors. It's okay to have a little friendly competition. The Bible talks about provoking one another to love and good works. Showing up every hearing what you did and like, I want to do some of that. And we need teammates. If you're trying to conquer the land alone, you're going to go too slow. And you may never get there. Even Caleb, the great Caleb, the conqueror waiting for 45 years, is able to let the last city go to the next in line. You need people. Get help, friends. Chapter 15, verse 20 to the end, lists the names of the cities of Judah. If you read this list closely, you'll see some familiar names. You'll notice that in verse 45 through 47, it starts to emphasize the Philistines a little more. And also in verse 63, that Jerusalem remained unconquered at this time, which tells us that the book of Joshua took its final form prior to the reign of David, which is exactly what we should expect according to the traditions we have. I'm also going to skip all of chapter 16 and the first 11 verses of chapter 17. This is combining the inheritance of Ephraim and Manasseh, who were the two sons of Joseph. Jacob had Joseph as his favorite, so he blessed both of his sons with a double portion so that Ephraim and Manasseh both counted as a full tribe, which is why you don't often hear of the tribe of Joseph when you're reading your Bible. Their territory would follow the Jordan River north from where Judah's ended, follow the Kishon River west, and their southern border would go from Jericho across to Bethel, almost all the way to Joppa. Ephraim had a uh, smaller section in the south of that. And also mentions the daughters of Zelophehad, who were the five daughters whose father had no son. And so that's where the Lord established that, yes, daughters, when there are no sons, can carry the inheritance too. That's in Numbers chapter 27. But let's look at verse 12 to verse 18. I don't know if I've ever really caught this passage before, but we might need to spend some more time on it later. It says, Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not utterly drive them out. Then the people of, spoke, of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I'm a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? Joshua said to them, <laughs> such an old man thing to say, well, if you're a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. I say, well, if you're so big and strong, why don't you go conquer it? What do you need my help for? People of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beth Shean and its villages and in those in the valley of Jezreel. 
Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. <laughs> Tribes of Joseph are given their distribution, but they're having some trouble taking possession of all of it. They can't drive out those last few guys. Seems like they were strong in the valley and had these chariots and then there were some hiding in the forest and kind of doing a Robin Hood thing and they just couldn't do it. So what do they do? They go to Joshua and complain. We're the biggest tribe out here and we, don't, we only got one section. Joshua goes, what one section? You haven't even finished the section I've got you. You never do that with your kids? You finish that first and then I'll give you something else. Well, they're big and scary and they have chariots. And also it's in the forest. We can't use the forest. And Joshua goes, you will have more when you get your butt out there and finish the job. What a great little section here. Joshua insisted that they go out and drive out the Canaanites. But they were afraid. They were discouraged. And it seems like it had been a while. If you want rest from war, friends, number three, you've got to face your fears. There's no other way forward. You can't walk up in your Christian life and find something that scares you and then say, oh, well, let's go a different way. That's not how it works. Your progress will stop if you stop. After all their battles that they had won, after all the miracles they'd seen, the tribes of Joseph were unmanned by this foe they were fighting. And they instead become, do you see this? Entitled. We deserve more. You haven't even taken the thing that I got you. Well, we don't have enough. You would have enough if you did what I said. You know what entitlement is? This is what entitlement says. I should have it by now. That's entitlement. I've worked hard enough where I ought to be making this much money now. No, you haven't. You know how I know? Because you're not making that much money yet. I've worked hard enough that I deserve this. What deserve? There's no such thing as deserve. There's only do enough to go get it. Well, it's harder for me than some people. Okay. That's life, friends. You get out there and you do it. Don't sit there and say, God should give this to me because after all I've done for him. God goes, all I've done for you, I said you're more than a conqueror. I said that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. All those that rise against you shall fall. You'll mount up with wings like eagles. Take advantage of that first. It's just been so long. I've been waiting so long. You know what the writer of the Hebrews said? He said, buck up, soldier. You ain't bled yet. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Oh, I know it's hard, but you've got friends over here in Rome that are getting their heads chopped off, so y'all can just mosey on. Strengthen your weak knees. Lift your, your hands that are faltering. There's always going to be things that scare you because the fight is real. It's not imaginary. This isn't just a metaphor for, oh, think it positive and it'll happen. It won't. You've got to fight for it. There are real Canaanites out there with real iron chariots hiding behind real trees, and you've got to swing a real sword and cut real arteries and chop off real heads to take what God has given you. And the changes that are required of you, the sacrifices that are required of you can be intimidating. But guys, God is with you. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us a spirit of what? Fear. So if you're afraid, is that God? No. You can tell where you have no faith where you're afraid. Saying I should just never be afraid? No, I'm saying you should be brave. Be courageous. What do you think courageous means? You're not courageous when you go to the grocery store because you know nothing's going to happen to you. 
Maybe you walk into the wrong grocery store, you might need a little bit of courage. I've been in a few of those before. But listen, when you see what's got to happen, sometimes there are intimidating people that you've got to deal with to win your promised land. I dealt, did uh, high school ministry for seven years and did college ministry after that. Young men especially coming out of their household can have some really intimidating parents. And the thought of going on and earning your own way and, and buying your own house and you choosing who you're going to be with and what you're going to do for a living, that can be intimidating. Moving to a new place is intimidating. It's fearful. I know what we've got to do. God has called us here. I know that this is what I want to do with my life, but it would require a big move to go here. I don't know if I can do it. That's intimidating. Sometimes we're emotionally addicted to bad people. Hopefully none of y'all have ever been like that, but I know you've probably known a few people like that. You try to help somebody, and then you see a few episodes of their life go by, and you're like, man, y'all deserve each other. I don't think you're ever breaking up. You, you, I don't know what else you do with your time. Emotionally addicted to people. But all those things can be beaten. All those things can be beaten. You might have to change your personality. Why do we place such a big value on our personality? Well, that's just who I am. So change. You're telling me to, yes, I'm telling you to change. It's called sanctification. You've got to go from being one way to being a different way, called like Jesus. Well, you don't know how I was raised. Rise above it. Caleb was a slave. And now he's a conqueror of giants. Rise up, friends. Nobody's going to hand you victory. I've done enough. I ought to have it by now. You haven't done enough unless you've got it in your hand. That's when you know you've done enough. Jesus didn't say it is finished until he had taken the full weight of God's wrath on the cross. And then he breathed his last. Same thing for you. Keep going until you get it. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 10. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. Might want to underline that. It's rather significant. Shiloh. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, What are you waiting for? How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out, that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions. Bring the description here to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. And Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave them. So the man arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, Go up and down in the land and write a description and return it to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns in seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh, and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord, and there Joshua apportioned the land of the people of Israel to each his portion." This is a very significant moment here in verse 1, where the tabernacle was given its permanent location, Shiloh. This is where Samuel is going to be raised by Eli. 
Deuteronomy chapter 12 had that chapter where the Lord told them, I'm going to choose a place for my presence to dwell. And that's where you're going to come meet with me. Shiloh was the first place until David took it upon himself to bring it to Jerusalem. But seven tribes still had no territory because they had not yet gone out and conquered it. Remember, that was the thing. Okay, guys, go pick your land. You know, go fight over it. <laughs> pick your spot and go take it. But none of them would do it. So Joshua calls them up and says, what are, you want, what are you waiting for? Go get it. Well, we haven't decided who gets what and is this, this, we're fighting. And he's like, you know what? Fine. I, do I have to do everything? I'll do everything for you. Fine. You all send out three people from each tribe. Go take a survey of the land. Divide it up into seven pieces. And we'll roll dice to see who gets it. That was the plan. Rather than letting the people forge their own identity through conquest. The Lord would be in this casting of lots, but it was not the way God originally intended it. Friends, if you want rest from war, number four, you've got to move fast. Delay leads to disappointment. You've got to move fast. Most of the tribes were waiting rather than warring. They were milling around in their camps. They were still living in tents like they'd been doing in the wilderness for 40 years. They were living like nomads in the promised land where they were supposed to settle permanently. And many of us can do the exact same thing. It is always easier to dream than to get to work. Isn't that unfortunately true? Lots of people have big dreams of what I'm going to do someday. But actually getting down to do the job never happens. And what happens when you don't is the disappointment starts to pile up. Not everybody has a Joshua in their life to say, get after it. You do, because here I am saying it to you. But the disappointments pile up, and you get bitter, and you get angry, and all these things start to pile up, and the excuses get louder and louder and stronger and stronger as year after year goes by. Make a battle plan and go fast. That's what we need to do. Make a battle plan and go fast. You want to know a really fun thing you can do when you're making plans that can really encourage you when it happens. You make a, you, you know, set the goal, whatever it is that we're going to do, whatever God is leading us to do. It doesn't have to be ministry. It can be relationships. It can be business. It can be anything. Be losing weight, whatever it might be. That's godly too. Gluttony is a sin. But you lay this out and you say, okay, here's where we want to be. What are the steps we need to get there? And here's a trick that somebody taught me that I love doing. So, okay, if it's going to be eight steps to get there, say, can we do step eight first? Just try that. Maybe we don't have to do one through seven. Maybe we can just start with eight. Okay, we can't do that. How about seven? Can we do seven today? I cannot tell you how many times this has happened in my life where I'm like, okay, we're going to do this in three years. This is the three-year plan. And then I go, what if we did it this year? What would it take? Let's just, just look. Let's see what it takes. We can do this this year. Let's go. Let's just go. What are we waiting for? And that will be so encouraging to you. It's, it's like that Jonathan and his armor bearer moment where it's like, let's go over and see. Maybe, maybe God will do it for us. Maybe we don't have to fight the war. Maybe God will just do it with two people. Move fast. Make that phone call. How many of your life's plans are just waiting on you to pick up the phone and call somebody? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get a new job. Okay, have you called somebody and asked for one? I really want to repair the relationship with my father. When's the last time you called him? I don't know. I'm just waiting for the right time. Today is the day, friends. Do it today. Make that phone call. Well, I really want to move on and try something different. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to save money. Then save money. Get it together. You know, it's, it's funny how many things we can throw in the way. 
If you're trying to, well, I'm trying to save money so I can do this thing. Then what are you eating out for? Right? What are you eating out for? What are you buying stuff for? Move fast. Move faster. Because the longer you wait, the easier it is to stay still. Inertia is real. Change your job. I hate my job. Then quit. You live in America. Free country, baby. Go get it. Well, I don't have another one set up. Okay. You live in one of the best times. It's kind of like best of times, worst of times right now. But like, you can, you can get a bunch of little filler jobs to tide you over while you look for the good one. Some people, we get stuck and like, well, I made this one choice and I don't like it, but I guess this is forever. Why? Move fast. Get up and go. Go take the land. Stop waiting for somebody to hand it to you. One of these days, I'm going to go back to school and get my degree. What about now? Well, yeah, I don't know if I want to do it right now. Well, then what do you want? If you don't want that, then don't do it. But if you do, and if it's what God wants for your life, you ain't getting any younger, friend. Get out there. Make it happen, Captain. The reason you are feeling unsettled in your life is because you won't move. Because you know this is not where you're supposed to be, but you refuse to move to where you are supposed to be. So you're in this constant state of about to, maybe, might, want to someday, and you're always frustrated. Why am I so anxious? That's why... Why am I so nervous? That's why. Why am I being addicted to all these things? That's why. Well, I need some me time. I need some evenings to myself. And I just get so tired. Just stop with that. You know what I learned recently? If I'm not busy enough, I start to, I start to decline. If I don't, I've got to have like just that right level of lots of things going on. Or else I start to just kind of like sit in my chair in the, in the living room. Catelyn will tell you, I'll just be like, like, what do you want to do? You don't want to watch a movie? I'm like, I don't want to watch a movie. What's that going to do? Is that going to accomplish anything? Well, what do you want to do? I don't know. Well, you know what I need? More stuff in my life. Maybe you might be that person too. I don't know. But I think most of us could do more than we can. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite, favorite uh, quotes from him, he said, we are capable of far greater things. It is time for us to attempt them for we are not getting any younger. He said that to some pastors. We are capable of far greater things. It is time for us to attempt them. I'll say that to you too, friends. What do you have to lose? If you're unhappy now, well, what if I'm happy? Then you haven't gone anywhere. You just tried something. So anyway, Joshua kind of holds their hand and leads them along to this part. Uh, I'm going to skip from chapter 18, verse 11, to chapter 19, verse 48. This is where they're uh, divvying up the land by lot. I will just kind of summarize this for you. Benjamin goes from chapter 18, verses 11 through 28. They're going to remain part of Judah. Jerusalem, the city, was actually in Benjamite territory. So when the land separates, Benjamin is the tribe that's going to stay with the house of David. Simeon is from chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. According to Jacob's prophecy, they were a small nation. They really didn't have much of a central identity. So they would be in the middle of Judah and eventually would be more or less absorbed into the nation of Judah. Zebulun, chapter 19, verses 10 through 16. This is up in the north, part of the region of Galilee. Jesus would spend some time there. Issachar's land are from chapter 19, 17 through 23. Also up in the north, Asher's lands from chapter 19, 24 through 31, they had a coastal territory and they would extend up north to the Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon. So whenever you see Tyre and Sidon invading the land, very often it's the territory of Asher that they're invading. Naphtali's lands are from chapter 19, 32 through 39. They had the coast of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was in the land of Naphtali. And that's why there's that prophecy in the book of Micah about the light shining in the darkness. Oh, excuse me, that's Isaiah, about the light shining in the darkness. 
Dan's lands are from chapter 19, 40 through 48, middle of the country, on the coast. Uh, chapter 19, verse 47 mentions that there was a reconquest. Apparently Dan took their land, were driven out, and then had to go back and get it again. So that's, that's the right thing to do. So it's good they did that. But let's finish up the chapter, verse 49. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath-serah, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. These are the inheritances that Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by Lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. Joshua is going to receive his own city and the territory of Ephraim, which makes sense because he was of the tribe of Ephraim. So Joshua was descended from Joseph, in case you ever wondered about that. And his city was called Timnat-serah. But I like this because no longer is Joshua conquering anything. Look at what it says. It says, he rebuilt the city and he dwelt in it. This is the important next step after the conquest is over. This is point number five. If you want rest from war, if you want to walk in the abundance of the promised land that God has given you, you've got to be a builder. Simple conquest is not enough. You've got to be able to build after you have won the war. All his life, Joshua had been a fighter. First thing we read about him is going into battle against the Amalekites. But once you've won the land, it's time, according to Solomon and Ecclesiastes, to step back and enjoy your life with your wife and your children and everything that you've built, to enjoy the inheritance that you've won for yourself. You've got to be able to make the switch. The hardest part of war is coming home. More people have been defeated by victory than have actually enjoyed it. I think this is one of my biggest concerns for the United States. We accomplished everything our founding fathers could ever have possibly dreamed, and then some put a man on the moon, and then what? We're being defeated slowly by what? Not an attacker. Even today, if somebody wants to mess with us, good luck, pal. Are we going to be defeated by victory? I sure hope not. We're going to be like the Laodiceans in Revelation 3.17, who said, I am rich and wealthy, and I don't need anything. But the Lord said, not realizing that you are wretched, poor, blind, and naked. You've got to be able to exchange that sword for a hammer, my friend. Put down the sword and start building something. To beat your sword into a plowshare, your spear into a pruning hook. What does this look like? You know... You ladies might not like this, or maybe you do. I don't want to put words in your mouth. But gentlemen often talk of getting married as winning. I'm going to win a bride. I'm going to, I'm going to slay the dragon and win fair lady's heart. Now that's a real feminist. Well, we're not objects. I think y'all are smart enough to get that's not the point. But here's the thing. A lot of guys love the chase, and they love the conquest, and they love the thought of, I'm finally, this woman is going to marry me. Right? Wow, I can't, what, what did I, where did I do? I gotta write it down, you know? <laughs> but what happens to a lot of guys is now they're married and they don't know what to do. All I know how to do is chase girls. And now I'm not supposed to do that anymore. So what do I do now? You raise a family. We've got to make sure we incorporate that into our idea of what manhood is. It's not that finding a beautiful woman, wooing her, marrying her, making your millions is not part of masculinity. It is. 
But you've also got to be able to sit down and raise a family, to become a father and a grandfather. Ladies, same thing for you. A lot of ladies delight in their beauty, and you should. If God made you beautiful, awesome. But when you get to the point where you're married, that's going to change. That's going to change. You're not going to be able to display yourself as you used to. And I'm certainly not talking about anything that is intended to provoke lust, that is lascivious or lewd. You shouldn't be doing any of that at any point of your life. But some women have a very hard time with that. They're used to the attention from a lot of men. Now I've got to be able to turn that away and only seek the attention of one man. That's hard. That's learning to build the city. Saving your money. Oh, I finally got the good job. What do I do now? Save up. Build up something great for your kids. Slowly improve and add on things. You're not desiring to accumulate just to be like Scrooge McDuck and dive into your, your pile of gold coins. Build something. I'm saved. Yay, God saved my life. Now what do I do? Study that book in your lap. That's not as exciting. There's begats in there. Yeah? But all these things are written down for our instruction. You bought the house. Now what? You go about improving the house. This is what men and women both do. Fellas tend to do it more on like a structural outdoor sense. Ladies do it more on the inside and that can overlap of course, but it can feel like, well, what do we do? We've got it. Make it better. Live in it. Build it. Some people want to have children but don't want to be parents. You ever known somebody like that? Where the kid is almost like a little dog they put in their purse and <laughs> kind of carry around. It's like, you know that thing's going to grow up one day and you know, my tax dollars are going to support it if you don't do something about this. I didn't mean that to be as edgy as it came out. <laughs> Things fall apart unless you are constantly working on them. Any homeowners in here? How is it just falling apart? Well, you've got to keep fixing it. In a few years, it won't even be the same house because all the pieces will be replaced. Don't force yourself to go find another war to win. Be able to return to the posture of war if you need to, but you've got to be able to be a builder also, okay? Chapter 20, I'm actually going to skip this entirely as far as our reading. This is where they assigned the cities of refuge. We discussed them at length in Numbers 35. This is where if you committed accidental involuntary manslaughter, you could flee to one of these cities where anybody who was trying to avenge you, which was biblical, God told Mo, uh, Noah in Genesis 9, if anyone sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Well, you could flee to this city. There were Levitical cities where they would take care of you until a trial could be had. And if you were found not guilty, you could live there until the high priest died. And they chose six of them. On the west of the Jordan River, they had Kadesh, Shechem, and Hebron. That was Caleb City, Hebron. And on the east, the other side of the river, they had Bezer, Ramoth, and Golan. Maybe you've heard of the Golan Heights. And you see often in the Bible, Ramoth, Gilead. That's one of the cities of refuge. So this means that Caleb would have possessed the region around it, around Hebron, but the city itself would have been a Levitical city of refuge. I'm also going to skip the first 42 verses of chapter 21. This is the distribution to the Levites. They were not given territory. They were given individual cities with the pasture land around them. So they were not the governors, but the Levites lived there uh, because the Lord was their inheritance because of their loyalty and their duty at the temple that God had given them. In Exodus 32, when they helped put a stop to the worship of the golden calf, they earned that privilege. The priests were squarely in the land of Judah, and the rest of the clans were spread out among the tribes. 
There are several priestly cities that come up a lot in the Bible stories. Hebron, Gibeon, which we talked about, became a Levitical city. Shechem, Ramoth, Gilead, and then others. Let's read verse 43 through 45 here. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Don't you want that to be said over your life? That it all came to pass? Back in Exodus 3.17, God told Moses out of the burning bush, He said, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And right here, God has kept that promise. After every obstacle, from Abraham's doubts to the sojourn and the slavery in Egypt, the journey through the wilderness, the wandering, the judgments that God inflicted upon them, the seven years of war, it was over. It was over, and the land was theirs. What's our sixth point? If you want rest from war, you've got to believe. You've got to believe. If God has promised, that's enough. We've got that song that we sing. You said it, I believe it. Now, Moses and the Lord freed millions of slaves. But the only ones who made the switch from being slaves to conquerors were those who believed God. The rest of them fell in the wilderness. And if we can take this analogy a little bit, there are many that are brought out of slavery of sin, that are living the Christian life, but will never enter that promised land because they will not believe God's word when he says, go in and take it, I'll be with you. Sometimes it feels spiritual to doubt. The devil does that. I'm not sure how that snuck in, but it did. That it's more spiritual to say, I just don't know if God's going to do this or not. I don't want to put God on the spot. I just want to be okay with whatever happens. And we call that faith. That's not faith. That, that's to use the poet's words, quiet desperation. That's not what God has for you. That's ridiculous. If God said it, you ought to walk and talk like he said it. And just go about it. Hebrews 11.6 says the only way to please God is through faith. We've, we've allowed false teachers to take the, the definition of faith and cause us to abandon the concept so that we don't want to be associated with them. Enough of that. Enough of that. What does it really mean? I know some people, they don't even want to preach topics like this because they don't want to sound like somebody else. You can't let that intimidate you. Believe. God said it. It's going to happen. Maybe y'all need to hang out with some more faith-filled people. I know I need to sometimes. You need to be able to walk around saying, God said this to me. He said it in his word. He said it through my pastor. It's going to happen. Well, that just sounds presumptuous. That's testing God. It is not. Don't let Satan put that in you. I believe God. You need to believe that if you are, have that in your heart to be married, God's going to bring the right person to you. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And how many good things does God withhold from those who walk uprightly? You'll be married. You will overcome that sin. This is just my cross to bear. That's not what that means. That's not what that means. You don't carry your cross your whole life. You die on it. I nailed it to the cross. It's dead. Isn't it gross? I'm so glad I'm not carrying that around anymore. 
You will achieve those dreams that God has given you. I don't want to be the pastor that's afraid to tell you to go for it in life. People are so beaten down today. And we think the solution to that is to fold our arms and get all grumpy about it. What does that help anybody? Get up and go for it. The Lord said it. You'll do it. You're going to rise from the dead someday. I believe that. I just don't know if God's going to help me, you know, get out of this bad situation. Why not? You're a king. You're a queen. You're a child of the, of the king of kings. You've got the power of the Holy Spirit coursing within your soul. Step out and stop acting small. You've got to believe it. Many times we think God can do something, but we don't believe that He will. I know He does. I'm just not sure if He wants to. I know God can heal, but does He really want to heal me right now? Well, He told us to ask, so probably... Don't you know how many people have been hurt by teaching like that? Look, guys, I'm never going to preach because I'm afraid that I'm going to embarrass God by teaching His Word boldly and plainly. God is sufficient to uphold His own Word and His own truth. I don't have to be defending Him like some fair maiden, some damsel in distress. I'm the weak one in this situation. I'm just passing on what He said. If you want to have rest from war and take hold of that promised land, you've got to believe that God is going to do this. He's going to do this. Again, I have to skip a large section in chapter 22 because there is a, there's a lot going on in this, these chapters, just the distribution of the land. Let's skip down to verse 10. This is when the eastern tribes, those that lived in the Transjordan, lived across the, across the river. I don't know if I have time to read this whole section either. Let me just tell you the story. How's that? And you can read it on your own time. The tribes go across the river and everybody starts to settle up in their land. But then word comes to those that are living on the western side, in the land of Canaan itself, that those that are living in the Transjordan have built an altar at the riverside. And it's big, and it's impressive, and it's really something. And so what do they assume? They assume they're building another sanctuary to worship the Lord. They've said, we're abandoning Shiloh. We're abandoning the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to have our own <laughs> we're going to have our own altar. So what did the children of Israel do? Well, these were men that had cut their teeth on the battlefield. So they said, saddle up, boys. And they raised an army. And at the head of that army was Phineas. And you know how Phineas dealt with sin, don't you? Phineas was the guy that skewered a fornicating couple through the middle in order to stop a plague that was coming upon Israel. So uh, they think you've sinned and Phineas is in charge. <laughs> There's an army with them? Oh, of course there is. Well, they get there and they say, okay, fellas, what's going on? What, what are you doing? They, they said, Did, haven't we had enough of the sins of Balaam? The sins that caused us to be struck down before the Lord? They even say at one point, if your land is defiled, leave it and come over here. They say, if you living in that land is such a big temptation for you that you're going to go back to idolatry, we'll make room for you. That's a true brother, right? I'm willing to sacrifice what I have in order to help you overcome sin. But the people come back and they say, no, 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 no. That's not what's going on, fellas. Look, what we're concerned about is because you live on that side of the river and we live on this side. Time will go on and there's going to be these natural divisions that grow up between east and west and people from your side are going to eventually say, y'all don't belong here. You're not really part of the tribes. You don't get to come and worship at this tabernacle. So we built this enormous, like oversized altar so that both sides will remember, oh yeah, we belong over there. This altar is not to be used. It's a monument. It's a reminder. And what does Phineas and the other guys say? Oh, thank God. We thought we were going to have to go to war. <laughs> 
We thought we were going to have to do that. It turns out it was a monument. It was not false worship. This passage would have been very significant for those who lived later on. You know, over time, regions have tension. You know, look at the north and the south in our country, the growing animosity between the those, that, those that live on the coast, those that live in the center of the country. That's just that's what happens, right? North and South Korea, east and west Berlin, it happens. So having something like this written in the Bible would have reminded everybody, they belong with you. They belong here. They belong in that tabernacle. Don't exclude them. And don't y'all over there either think that you can just abandon God's house and do your own thing because you can't. We can take a lesson from how seriously both sides of this conflict took the situation. You won't rest from war, guys. Number seven, the final thing. You've got to honor God. Otherwise, it's all going to fall apart. All the nation was in agreement that the Lord should be honored. And everybody in that story is trying to make sure that happens. Those on the western side of the Jordan were saying, hey, what are they doing? Are they worshiping false gods? We've got to stop them. Those on the eastern side of the Jordan were saying, how do we make sure that our kids and their kids never keep us from coming to worship the Lord as he ought to be worshiped? And that made it easy to resolve the conflict when you all want the same thing. If you think you can just use God to get what you want and then skip out on his commandments, you fall to pieces. Oh, look what God has built. Thanks, God. I'll take it from here. I'll take it from here. I'll do my thing. I finally got that job. Thank you, Lord, for finally providing that job. Now how I deal with this money is my thing. You mind your own business. Oh, the Lord finally brought me a wife, but the way I treat her is entirely up to me. Lord, I know I'm supposed to submit to my husband. I thank you for providing that husband, but I'm not going to do any of that submitting stuff. I'm a modern, independent woman. You really think that's going to work for you? You'll end up being like Demas. You'll desert him when you've had enough. 2 Timothy 4.10, one of Paul's traveling companions. Paul says, Demas has deserted me, having fallen in love with this present world. It's like, look, this apostle thing was fun for a while. You know, it was, it was real nice getting my kicks on Route 66 with Paul, but now I'm done. I'm tired of getting beat. I'm tired of getting depressed. I want to get married. I want to live life. I want to make some money. Goodbye. That's what happens. How do we prevent this? Easy things, guys. Go to church. You're here. Good job. I'm serious. Good job. Most people don't. Read your Bible. Like, read it. <laughs> don't just have it. Say, this is my Bible. I believe every word. Okay, when's the last time you opened it up and read it? And don't say Sunday. That doesn't count. <laughs> It kind of does, but you know what I mean. Pray and fast. Serve somewhere. Where are you serving in the church? Where are you using your gifts in this church? Well, it seems you all kind of got everything under control. We don't. It seems like, you know, the same kind of people just kind of do everything. So, you get in there. Push somebody out of the way. Say, I'm Caleb and I want the mountains. Maybe you're better at it than them. Perfect. Let's get you in there. Pass it on. Spread the gospel to somebody. Be holy. Live righteously. Stop sinning. That's how you walk in obedience to the Lord. This is the purpose of all of these dreams. Why does God want you to have all this promised land? Because you honor God. You get something wonderful flowing with milk and honey. People look at that and they say, how did you get that? You say, by the glory of our Lord. So that brings on the knowledge of God to somebody else. And it blesses their life. And it passes it on to somebody else and blesses their life. That way God fills the world with the knowledge of his truth and provides blessing and joy to those that live there. Have you ever considered it that way? you ever considered your job that way? 
<laughs> I told you all, my last job, I was watched like a hawk. So everybody knew I was a pastor. Oh, what's he going to do? You know you have to lie to do this job. I was told that. And I said, well, we're going to see how much money I can make without lying at this job. That was funny. I was complained to my boss about that. I said, Tyler's too religious. He's going to make us lose money. <laughs> that happens, right? People watch you. So I've been watching you for a while. Why don't you curse? People notice things like that. You're glorifying the Lord. Now you're doing well. Now you've moved on. Man, why do you keep getting promoted? Well, you know, I believe in Jesus. And the Bible says, do whatever you, you do heartily as unto the Lord. Give it everything you've got. Put your heart into it like you're serving Jesus. I know our boss is a jerk, but I'm not serving him. I'm serving the Lord. And that, that, the Lord honors that. People take notice of that. Now, it wouldn't work for me. Oh, it totally could. Don't you know what Jesus has done for you? Well, me and God, we just don't really get along. You know, you don't understand. God sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for you so that He could bring it together. If you want rest from war, you've got to want it. You've got to get help. You've got to face your fears. You've got to move fast. You've got to be a builder. You've got to believe. And you've got to honor God. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest. Strive! Strive so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. If you ain't working hard, you're falling asleep. God has made you some awesome promises. He's rescued you from slavery. Now it's time to get to work. Too many people are languishing in the promised land, still living in their tent when they should be conquering cities. Out of fear, out of laziness, out of entitlement. It's a shame. Take all that energy that you have for your work, for your love, for fun, and aim it in the right direction, and you'll become a victor. You'll be a champion. And then you'll build something wonderful that'll last forever. The war comes first, but then it's a fight to achieve the rest that God has for us.